Family Church, we miss you guys so much, and we're looking forward to this ending. You know, as I was mentioning earlier this morning, uh, the temptation of COVID lockdown, where there's no end in sight, where the numbers keep going up, is to distract ourselves, to begin to look to numb our hearts and our souls with entertainment. And so what a kindness of God that in his wisdom, we get to spend time in the Gospel of Luke, hanging out with Jesus, walking with him, finding hope and comfort in him. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to read from verse 12, and then I'm going to invite the Lord to help me in the preaching of his word. Luke chapter 5. Verse 12, this is the word of the Lord to us this morning, church. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed, a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen 
extraordinary things today. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning as we come before your word, we ask and pray for a miracle of your grace. Lord God, would you open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. Lord God, open the eyes and the hearts of your people listening this morning to behold the glory of our Lord Jesus. Lord God, you know that in and of ourselves, we cannot see you, we cannot hear from you, and yet we cry out, Lord, Holy Spirit, come soften our hearts that we might hear from you and be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. And my question is this. Is there a point at which a person has gone too far to be forgiven? You know, in the news recently, there's been a very significant trial. Just over two weeks ago, former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years for the brutal assault and murder of George Floyd. It was a brutal crime, and what was unique about it is that it was caught on camera, and it really shocked the whole world. And yet even one of the longest sentences ever given for police brutality, in some ways, seems insufficient. It doesn't seem enough. This man, Derek Chauvin, has found himself to be one of the most hated, one of the most despised men in the whole world. And so the question I've been thinking about this week is this. Can Derek Chauvin ever be forgiven? And who has authority to forgive him for what he's done? You know, in the eyes of the world, the truth is this man, Derek Chauvin, is irredeemable. Yeah, he'll never go to work again as a police officer and is likely to be unemployable for the rest of his life. This man, Derek Chauvin, will likely go to his grave as a despised figure in the eyes of this world. And yet there is one who carries the authority to completely forgive him. Even more than that, to cleanse him and to welcome him into his very family. You know, if you've got a notebook there and you're taking notes with us this morning, I've entitled this message, Commander-in-Chief. And really I have two points that come straight from the text this morning, one for each of the healings, uh, the miracles that we see in our passage. Point number one, the authority to cleanse, and point number two, the authority to forgive. You know, I've been saying this morning that there's a temptation for us in the midst of COVID, and that is to distract ourselves with things like sweets and Netflix and projects and exercise and hobbies. And yet I have one point for us this morning as we examine this text, one hope that comes directly from this passage of Scripture, and that is this, 
that we draw near in faith as we examine the authority of Jesus, our commander in chief. Well, let's dive on in and begin to examine our passage this morning with point number one, the authority to cleanse. You know, just by way of context, if you're new to the Gospel of Luke, the biography of Luke, Jesus, having begun his ministry in chapter 4, is now displaying in multiple ways his authority. He is the promised servant of the Lord, uh, foretold in Isaiah 61. And he teaches in a way different from all other teachers because he teaches in his own name and by his own authority. He has power over evil spirits and he has power to heal. He's healed multiple people multiple times. Last week, having called to himself his first disciples, he displays even more of his authority. And in our passage, Jesus, through two different healings, displays his authority once more in two different areas. Why don't you read with me again the beginning of our passage this morning from verse 12 of chapter 5. It says, While he was in one of the cities, there came to him a man full of leprosy. You know, a man comes to Jesus who, in the words of Luke, is full of leprosy. Now, leprosy in the Bible is actually an umbrella term that covers a whole variety of skin conditions, including modern leprosy, which is also known as Hansen's disease. Hansen's disease, or leprosy, involved an infection of the nerves, uh, which leads to a loss of sensation and damage to the skin, which leads to infection and loss and the rotting of flesh. It is a horrible, horrible disease. Now, we're not told which skin disease this man had. All we're told that whatever the disease, it was extremely severe. This man was full of leprosy. You know, if you cast your minds back to the beginning of the COVID pandemic, uh, I remember distinctly on March the 20th when we closed our borders and shortly thereafter began the lockdown, going to the shops and finding Every single item seemed to be gone from the shelves. And as different people in their masks would scurry past you, you would see that sort of nervous, suspicious look on their face as they considered whether or not you had the plague. There's a sense of suspicion of people. Does my neighbor have COVID-19? Well, that feeling of fear probably gives you a sense of what it would be like to encounter someone with leprosy. You know, it wasn't just the medical consequences uh, of leprosy that were fearful, but it was the social consequences as well. You would be completely excluded. You know, let me read you this passage speaking about leprosy from Leviticus chapter 13. It says the following in verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Can you imagine what it would be like to endure the horrible consequences of being leprous? 
to cover their faces and wear torn clothes. That is to dress like someone mourning for the dead. To live outside the city alone, completely ostracized. And to warn people of their presence when they come near. It's exactly what we see in Luke chapter 17 later on where lepers approach Jesus from a distance and they call out to him. You know, Jewish custom required that lepers had to keep a distance of 50 paces from another person. They could not enter someone's house lest that house became unclean. They couldn't even be standing underneath a tree because if someone were to pass the tree a leper was standing underneath, that person would be considered unclean. Imagine with me what this would be like. If you're married, you would have to leave your spouse. If you had kids, you would not be able to see them. Maybe you have a nice house. Well, you could not enter it. You have a good career. Well, your career has ended. You are now a homeless beggar. You know, in the eyes of the community, you're a dead man. To be a leper was to be completely isolated and alone. Just as their clothing symbolized, they were considered the living dead. You would be banished from the city. Lepers were often known to live in caves or makeshift shelters and to depend on the charity of others to survive. Now, let's be honest. It feels like pretty harsh treatment, right? And the question I want us to consider is, but why is this the case? Well, partly it was to protect people from catching leprosy, the contagion in the community from the spread. But it was also because lepers were considered to be ritually unclean. Now, to be ritually unclean isn't about hygiene or being physically dirty or contagious or anything like that. It's also not about being morally good or bad but it's about being prepared to come into the presence of God. You see, the Bible teaches that God is completely holy. You know, our culture, when we think of holiness, we think of holier than now. We think of being morally good or even self-righteous. But in the Bible, holiness is more than that. To be holy means to be set apart. It means to be unique and unparalleled. God's holiness refers to the fact that he's different from everything in the entire universe. He's greater in power, he's greater in worth, he's greater in wealth, he's greater in wisdom, he's greater in knowledge, he's greater in goodness, he's greater in compassion. You know, if God were our solar system, God would be like the sun in his holiness. Completely different from all the other planets in the solar system. A bright, shining star. Powerful. And here's the thing, the closer you get to the sun, the more dangerous It is for you because it's the more likely you are to be destroyed. Similarly, not anyone can simply draw close to God, particularly those that have lived in defiance of him. And so God created a system of purity laws to symbolize our need for cleansing in order to enter into his presence. Since mankind are naturally unable to draw near to him, this system of cleansing was a gift of his grace. He created laws about the way in which people who do not deserve to be able to enter his presence could symbolically prepare to enter into his presence. You know, we're not given the exact rationale behind the list of rules, but mostly mostly, or most of them involve separation from things associated with death. 
you know, since death is the fruit of sin and God's curse on the world, God says you must symbolically rid yourself of anything associated with it before you can draw near to me. You see, purity laws pointed to the reality that all of mankind suffer from a kind of spiritual infection. There is a deadly disease of sin and death that is eating us away from the inside out. And as a result, we have no right to enter into the presence of God without being cleansed. You know, in the Bible, uh, there's two examples. Elisha's servant Gehazi, who lied to Naaman in 2 Kings 5, and Uzziah, the king, who, who conducted an illegal sacrifice, who were both struck symbolically with leprosy in order to display their inward condition on the outside of their bodies. And yet this man suffers from a severe affliction. He is covered in death and he is excluded from the community. In some ways, there is a kind of parallel between this man, this leper, and Derek Chauvin, although there is nothing to suggest that this leper was responsible for his disease, unlike Gehazi or King Uzziah. Chauvin, too, is covered in the death and the blood of George Floyd and therefore excluded. And so we read in verse 12 of our passage, while he was in one of the cities, there came to him a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You know, reading this story in light of the above, you can see this man's desperation. He sees Jesus and he throws himself at his feet and he begins to beg, please, my Lord, have mercy on me. And we can begin to imagine how the crowds would have been responding to this moment. Initially, likely with disgust and fear as they realize, oh my goodness, this is a leprous man and begin to back away slowly from him as they realize who's in their midst. But likely disgust morphs into anger as they begin to realize, who allowed this leper into the city? Get him away from the rabbi. You see, covered with death, a leper could not draw near to God or to the people of God. You know, don't miss, though, what is remarkable about this leper's bold request. It is his amazing faith. Yes, his wrists scorned, but more than that, he believes. If you will, you can make me clean, he says. This man had no doubt about the power of Jesus. He is able, says this leper. But notice what he says. He says, you are able to make me clean, not heal. You see, this leper wants more than to be healed. He wants cleansing. He wants to be reunited with his family. He wants to be reconciled with his people. He wants to be welcomed in the temple. And the question is not, is the Lord able? But is he willing? Would he want to? Would the Lord wish to cleanse a wretch like me? And so we read in verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. 
God incarnate, the eternal Son of God who had come as a man, the Word made flesh, reaches out his hand and he touches this leper. He touched him. Now, under the law, to touch a leper was to become unclean and defiled. And yet so great is the holiness of the Son of God. Rather than being infected, rather than being defiled, he cleanses. His touch washes this man clean of his leprosy as he says, I will be clean. You know, like Isaiah before the throne room of God, when he sees a glimpse of God's glory and cries, woe is me for I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips. Jesus, just like the burning coal from the altar of God that cleanses the prophet's lips, comes and touches this man, and in a moment he is clean. But here's the question. Why? Why would he touch this man? I mean, when he cast out demons, he only spoke. When he healed Simon's mother-in-law, it was just by his word. Why would he touch this man? Well, friends, it's symbolic of the manner in which he has come to us. You know, you might think that God, in light of our corruption, would desire to hold us at a distance. You might think that God would treat us kind of like holding his nose and keeping us at arm's length. But he came to fully embrace us in our condition. He came to be one of us. He came to be, in the words of Adam, flesh of our flesh. His purpose was to take our infirmities upon himself and to heal us. And his touch speaks of his willingness not only to heal this man, not only of his great compassion, but his desire to draw near to those who are spiritually infected. You see, Jesus doesn't stand aloof at a distance or away from this man or send him away. He reaches out and touches him. And so we read on in verse 14, it says, and he charged him not to tell to tell no one, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. You see, Jesus instructs this leper to faithfully follow the Old Testament law and be presented to the priests. This was essential to ensure faithfulness to Scripture, but also in order to be reconciled to God's people. And Jesus warns him to keep silent. He doesn't want crowds coming to be healed. His mission is not to be a faith healer, but to proclaim the coming kingdom and to be crucified in Jerusalem. Okay, cool story. You might be thinking this morning, how does this apply to us? Well, this man with leprosy in so many ways is a picture of the natural condition of every person. You see, regardless of whether you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus or not, we are all born suffering a kind of spiritual leprosy, an inward infection, a rotting of the heart. You know, I doubt that there are many of us who look like our flesh is rotting away from the inside. I mean, and yet all of us, for all of us, this is true of our inward condition. Now, we were designed with, by God with a clear purpose to know Him, to love Him, to worship Him, to serve and enjoy Him. And every fiber of our being was designed with that purpose in mind. And all of us have rejected God's chosen design and have chosen a path of our 
own making instead. And so have filled our minds and our hearts with dark thoughts about God. And so there's this mismatch between our outward appearance and our inward condition. Even though we look healthy on the outside, naturally on the inside, we're rotting away. We have spiritual leprosy. And this spiritual leprosy has many, many natural fruits. I was thinking about it this week, and here are just a list of four of them. The fruit of shame. If you're honest with yourself, do you live with that? With a deep sense of shame? That you're not the man or woman or husband or wife or son or daughter that you should be? Do you have a sense that you don't belong in this community, that you've failed too many times, that you're not like everybody else? Maybe there are things that you've done or things that have been done to you that leave you feeling dirty and defiled. Well, friends, behold the fruit of spiritual leprosy. Another fruit of spiritual leprosy is the fruit of hiding. You know, maybe because of the shame you feel, your instinct is to hide. You hide from church community. You retreat into your own thoughts. You avoid being around others because you're terrified of being exposed. Maybe when, even when you do gather, you withdraw into yourself. You never really share what you're wrestling with because you're afraid of what will happen. Maybe you'll be judged. Maybe you'll be cast out. Maybe you'll be scandalized. Maybe you'll be disgraced. You avoid even talking to God. You rationalize you're not ready for it. And you're afraid underneath of how he'll react to you. And so you distract yourself with food, with Netflix, with entertainment. It's the fruit of spiritual leprosy. Another fruit I've been thinking about is even the fruit of self-promotion. Maybe you're constantly trying to make something out of your life. To make it count and failure terrifies you. Maybe you can't handle criticism and you quickly try and justify yourself or you fly off the rail in anger. And yet underneath it all is a deep dissatisfaction with yourself. And you're using everything in your power to make yourself into something more. It's the fruit of spiritual leprosy. Or, fourthly, and perhaps most dangerously, it's the fruit of apathy. You were made by God to know Him and love Him, but you couldn't care less. You have no desire whatsoever to know God or love Him more. Your heart for God is as cold as a stone. It's the fruit of spiritual leprosy. What then is the solution to spiritual leprosy? Look at the example of the leper. He believed and by faith drew near. He didn't let shame stop him. He ignored the crowds and drew close enough to feel Jesus' breath, close enough that Jesus could reach down and touch him. He didn't hide in the shadows. He came and allowed himself to be exposed to ridicule to receive the healing. He didn't promote himself. He came as a beggar pleading for mercy. And despite being told to be silent by Christ, his heart was ignited and he couldn't help it but to tell everyone he stumbled across. You see, Jesus is willing to cleanse. The question is, are we willing to be healed? You know, John Calvin, uh, speaking about this passage, puts it so well when he says this. 
He says, since then, there is nothing in us but spiritual infection and leprosy, and that we are corrupt in our iniquities. What shall we do? What remedy is there? Shall we seek help from angels in paradise? Alas, they can do nothing for us. No, we must come to our Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to be disfigured from the top of his head, even to the sole of his feet, and was a mass of wounds, flogged with many stripes, and crowned with thorns, nailed and fastened to the cross, and pierced through the side. This is how we are healed. Here is our true medicine, with which we must be content, and with which we must embrace wholeheartedly, knowing that otherwise we can never have inward peace, but must always be tormented and tortured to the extreme. Unless Jesus Christ comforts us and appeases God's wrath against us. When we are certain of that, we have cause to sing his praises instead of being capable of nothing but trembling and confusion. You see, the beauty of the cross, friends, is that Jesus Christ was willing to be covered in wounds for you. He didn't just come to preach a message of cleansing. He came to carry our infirmities in his body. It isn't by a mere touch that we are healed, friends, this morning. It is a cleansing that cost him his very life. Behold how he willingly goes to the cross to be disfigured for you. Behold how he embraces the scorn and the shame of exclusion, all of it for you. Covered not only in death, but he died the death of deaths upon that cross, friend, for you. He took upon himself our right punishment on the cross, our right penalty for our wrongdoing, wrongdoing that has corrupted us within inward condition of leprosy that has left us defiled within. And he has become for us our great medicine simply through faith in him and him alone. Friends, he is the only source of cure for our inward sickness. And our right response is thanksgiving and praise. Isn't that good news this morning, friends? Doesn't that cheer your soul? Our passage shows us that Jesus, the commander-in-chief, has authority to cleanse. But not just authority to cleanse. Also, secondly, authority to forgive. Our second point. It's even more than that he is able to cleanse, but also able to forgive us. You see, our problem is more than that we are defiled and need of cleansing, but that we are guilty and in need of forgiving. Read with me verse 17. On one of these days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. You see, Jesus' reputation has by now spread far and wide and a collection of religious experts have traveled from all around the country to listen to this new teacher. And a group of men approached Jesus carrying a friend who's paralyzed on a stretcher. 
And they're hoping to bring him near to Jesus so Jesus can heal him. And Mark in his gospel tells us that the crowd inside and around the home is so big that they couldn't find a way into the house to reach Jesus. And so they, uh, to reach Jesus, and it's likely that people are telling them things like, go away, you know, this teacher's in, in, in the midst of teaching. He, go away, what are you doing trying to bring this man into this space? And so they come up with an idea. You see, roofs in the first century Palestine were flat, and they had external stairs through which you could walk up and onto the roof, and they were used for all sorts of different things, like kind of like an extra room where you could pray, uh, where you could sit and maybe enjoy a drink, or even you could dry grain or other produce up there. And so they carried their friend on the stretcher up the stairs and onto the roof, and they begin to take off the roofing material, exposing Jesus below. Now imagine the scene as Jesus is teaching with this great crowd, and dust and dirt begin to fall down, and Jesus begins to stop his teaching as everybody begins to look at what is taking place above him uh, through the roof. And suddenly all attention is focused onto the ceiling as faces begin to pop out and smile and as this man begins to be lowered down through the ceiling right before Jesus. And we read on in our story in verse 20, it says the following. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who alone can forgive sins but God? You know, what might have caused kind of like anger and frustration to me? Like, what do you think you guys are doing? It so pleases the Lord. He sees their faith, which we know included the faith of the paralyzed man, since God only promises forgiveness in response to personal faith. And Jesus doesn't even wait to ask the paralytic what he would like from them. He pronounces his sins forgiven in front of onlooking religious experts even before they have a chance to ask him for anything. You know, if we're honest to our 21st century ears, this whole scene sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? And what Jesus here says is a little confusing. Why doesn't Jesus focus on the more important things, right? You know, sure, religious concerns like the forgiveness of sins, they matter, they're important, but isn't the fact that his paralyzed present obviously a bigger concern? I mean, isn't that why his friends have brought him to Jesus in the first place? Isn't it kind of insulting that Jesus, first of all, offers him forgiveness of his sins? Now, even in our Christian culture, we can place forgiveness of sins on a level footing with a whole raft of other concerns. Yeah, sure, forgiveness, but also food and medical care and education and proper wages. Yet despite how we might naturally feel, the truth is that Jesus is in fact dealing with this paralyzed man's greatest problem first. You see, the message of the Bible is that the greatest need of all men is to be rescued from the just retribution from the one true God whom we have wronged. The God who made the world and everything in it made us to know him. And every person has turned their backs on him. 
Every person deserves his punishment. In the words of the prophet Ezekiel, the soul who sins shall die. Even the Lord Jesus says the following in Mark chapter 9, verse 43. The Lord Jesus says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Jesus is saying, do whatever it takes to avoid sin, to avoid hell. Take drastic action. You see, the average person in Australia right now will live to be 83 and a half. And after 83 and a half years, the average person will die and face God. The average person will die and face eternal consequences. You see, there is nothing more serious than to face God with no defense and no means of avoiding his just judgment. You see, forgiveness is not one of many important issues. It is the issue. Now, for anyone listening this morning here, this is perhaps the most important question you could ever ask. Am I ready to meet God? Jesus looks at this man coming near in faith and he doesn't even wait for him to ask. He says, you're forgiven. But the religious crowd listening in to his conversation see another obvious implication of what Jesus has just said. And that is a claim to be God. You see, if I wrong you by committing some sin against you, you know, maybe I take a run up and kick your dog like 10 meters or something like that, Patrick Chavez can't just pronounce my forgiveness on your behalf. He's not involved in the situation. He doesn't have that kind of authority. These religious experts know that sin is ultimately between us and God himself. To sin is to betray the God who made us to know him and love him. And to claim to be able to directly pronounce forgiveness is a claim to be the offended party. Jesus doesn't say, man, on behalf of God, your sins are forgiven. He says, man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus is claiming to be God himself. And they begin to mutter quietly in their hearts, blasphemy, blasphemy. However, Mark informs us that the Holy Spirit granted Jesus insight into their thoughts. And so we read in verse 22, the following. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus is saying, it's easy enough just to say your sin's forgiven, but how can you prove it? 
It's much harder to say, get up and walk to a paralyzed man, because then you have to prove it. But so that you might know that I carry the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, up, take up your bed, and go home. You know, working as a physiotherapist, I often work with people that have severe disability. Uh, I have one client of mine with severe MS, and as a result, he's completely bedridden, and you look at his hands and his feet, and all the muscles are kind of wasting away. When he goes out, he has to be in a fully supportive wheelchair in order to hold his head even in the right position. Imagine with me the scene of what takes place in this moment. Jesus speaks a word to this crippled, this severely disabled man. And in a moment, his muscles begin to restore and his hands unstiffen and his feet unstiffen. And he just stands up like a normal man, grabs his bedding and goes home praising God. Did you see what just happened to me? Uh, amazing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And, and, and runs home telling everybody that he can see losing his mind. And the crowd begins to see that was amazing. Did you see that man, that crippled man that came in who was carried on a stretch? He couldn't even come close to walking and he was healed. You see, our commander in chief has just demonstrated not only does he have the power to cleanse, but to forgive as well. See, the central message of this encounter is that the authority to forgive sin lies with the Lord Jesus alone. All that this paralyzed man had to do was to be brought to Jesus, believing Jesus could heal him. He didn't even get a chance to get a word in. Forgiven straight away. And this is the wonderful news for us this morning. It's not just that he has the ability to cleanse and forgive, but that he deeply desires to do it as well. And this really is wonderful news. And yet there really are many obstacles and barriers to us to receive this forgiveness. You know, for some people, they do not receive the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus because they feel their sins are too great. You know, maybe you have a deep secret. Maybe you've committed a horrendous sin, something despicable that you have done and you feel you're too great a wretch to ever be forgiven by the Lord Jesus. Maybe that's you listening this morning. Well, thankfully, he has the authority to forgive and not you. It's his decision and he is willing. The blood of the eternal son of God is worth far more than any sin you could commit. But it's not that some people think their sins are too great. I think perhaps our greatest temptation in the upper north shore of Sydney is to feel we simply don't need it at all. I mean, we're no Derek Chauvin. Right? And as a result, we're confident that if there is a God, our sins can be atoned for by ourselves. Yet the reality of indwelling sin means there is no such thing as a sin of which we are not capable. 
It's true we're unlikely to ever murder another man. But that is not because we're incapable. That is because we're unlikely to face the unique combination of circumstances in the course of our life that would lead us to do it. We have to say, but for the grace of God, there go I. You know, in the words of C.S. Lewis, a man is wise not to boast of victory in battles of which he has never fought. And so too for us, it is the grace of the Lord Jesus that we do not do far worse than what we have already done. You see, unless we see ourselves like Derek Chauvin, we will never come to Christ like the leper or the paralyzed man to receive his forgiveness. Well, friends, as we begin to close our time this morning together, I want to close with some thoughts about how do we actually apply this passage to ourselves this morning? Well, the answer is very simple. We draw near to Christ in faith. You know, many of you listening online, many of us listening online, we're already following Jesus. I sort of pause to address you briefly this morning. How do we rightly apply this passage this morning as a follower of Christ? Well, the simple answer is by not wasting lockdown. You know, we find ourselves back in lockdown once more and it can be so frustrating for many of us and yet it does present us with an opportunity. You see, the right response of both the leper and the paralytic was to praise God as they draw near to him. And so the question I want to leave you with this morning to consider in light of this passage is this. How can you use the extra time of lockdown to draw near and praise him? You know, maybe it's by giving yourself to reading a good book that you might not otherwise read instead of watching too much Netflix. You know, maybe it's going on more walks and praying more and, and singing more and finding ways to enliven your soul, to get down on your hands and knees and to meditate on his scripture and to just draw near to him. But maybe you're listening to this online live stream this morning and you're new to all this. And you wouldn't naturally describe yourself as a follower of Jesus, at least not yet. You're on a journey, you're on a path. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining our live stream this morning. And I want to close our time together by sharing with you a story of of something that's been happening in our church community over the last week. You see, uh, in Wednesday last week, uh, Monch Pasolich, one of our beloved associate members, uh, went to be with the Lord. And tomorrow, in fact, we were due to have a celebration of his life. Uh, And yet it's been postponed to the COVID pandemic and the lockdown. And our prayers are with Julie, uh, Dave, Mike, Emma, and uh, Rach and all the kids at this time. But for most of his life, Monch didn't know the Lord. And yet last year, a cancer diagnosis forced him to consider his standing with the Lord. And he drew near. At the very twilight of his life, in the kindness of God, 
Monch repented of his sins and put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And our brother is now cleansed. And our brother is now forgiven. And we're looking forward to when we can celebrate. You see, God was so kind to Monch because he gave him time. And yet not everyone gets that time. So my encouragement to you, friend, if you're listening to this, is don't delay. Come to Christ. Would you join me with pray, uh, in praying as we close? Lord God, we want to thank you so much this morning for the beautiful gift of your word. A living word. A breathing word. A word that on every page is filled with the glories of Christ. And Lord God, thank you so much that you are our great commander-in-chief. You hold everything within your power, including the power to cleanse us from all of our shame and inward leprosy and the, the power to forgive us from all our failings. Lord God, I pray for us as a church community this morning. Lord God, would you help us during this lockdown not to waste it, not to let it come and go and to treat it like a holiday, but to treat it as, in some ways, an opportunity. An opportunity to use those quiet nights, to use the lack of a commute, to draw near to you, to spend time at your feet, gazing at your beauty. Enjoying the riches of being washed, being forgiven, having a glorious hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.